This is the most important thing that Bitcoin has not been hacked. Yeah, of course there's scams. Every Everything's always gonna have a scam or a scam artist, I should say. But the network itself has been completely secure since inception, as you know. And so we need to stress that every government agency uses a firewall, every major bank, every Wall Street uh, hedge fund, right? To protect their data and assets. And that's all the energy from the miners is really doing. Yeah, they're verifying. The majority of it is to secure the network for people. And those 46 million Americans across this country deserve the same security assurances as Wall Street investors. Hey everyone, welcome back to Bitcoin is Hard. This is a Choice App production about Bitcoin and personal finance. Today we have Kyle Schnapps, who's the Director of Public Policy at Foundry. And there's been a lot going on in the world of Bitcoin mining, public policy. And so we're just going to hand it to him, right to him at the top of this and just kind of say, you know, tell us about Foundry. What does Foundry do and what's going on at the moment? Yeah. Hey, Brian. Nice to uh, nice to be here with you. Um, so Foundry is uh, a wholly owned subsidiary of Digital Currency Group. And Foundry focuses on providing the infrastructure that's needed for digital assets. And so a large part of our business model focuses on uh, Bitcoin mining. Um, and we actually have the number one Bitcoin mining pool in the world uh, for the past, uh, I think, seven or eight months. So uh, a lot of a lot of our uh, employees and a lot of our uh Mission statement is focused around a lot of the philosophies that that underpin uh, uh, Bitcoin, and so uh, we we try to um, have advisory services for energy companies for anybody who wants to do mining. We have uh, machine trading, uh, Foundry X, um, and one of the programs most recently we have is called Foundry Academy, which is uh, a learning. Uh, a learning academy for people to come and, and just learn about how to Bitcoin, learn the technical skills that they need to mine themselves and get all of that information from experts, not only experts from the Bitcoin uh, uh, mining community, but also from the education community. So we have you know, proper curriculum development, all that. So lots of different uh, uh, business streams at Foundry. That's awesome. I didn't, that's a great stat about the largest, largest pool in the world. I did not know that. Um, so that's, yeah. that's cool. How and then is Foundry based in New York? Because that's so interesting. Like what I understand loosely what's happening with the moratorium and things like that. But it's such a like of all states for Bitcoin mining, it sounds like tough there. So I didn't I is Foundry based there or that's just where you're based? Yeah. Yep. Foundry is actually uh it was founded and its headquarters are in Rochester, New York, which is okay. western New York, uh little little uh little outside of Buffalo. And so a lot of our employees are actually from, in fact, almost all of them are from Western New York. Cool. And uh, our CEO, Mike Collier, he is from Western New York as well, from Rochester, went to University of Buffalo. And so a lot of, you know, setting up our business there and expanding how we have. So over the past three years, we've gone from two employees to 170. And so... Uh, that sort of connection to the community and revitalization in this area of New York that is often overlooked and underserved. They've been in this un industrial decline for you know a half century. 
and to finally have a business come in and start to set up and shop and put down roots and and grow in this way and and have these like high paying tech jobs is really great for the area. Um, and Foundry also does a lot of um, you know paid pathways for for people who are um, for inner city youth who mm-hmm. have not had the same opportunities as many people and they actually come and they're employees of Foundry right now as we speak and That's learning per- Bitcoin. That's perfect. So stay on this more and give me what I want to say is give us more of this, like, just kind of give us the geography lesson on New York, even at a base, more basic level for the people like me sitting in our closets on the West Coast, like and everyone else listening. (laughs) Give us even that, because I think that'll lean into, um, yeah, just the difference between city and like outserts in New York. Yeah. So so New York City um, is obviously the major center of New York. Um, And it actually wall street itself pays something in the neighborhood of like 40% of all the taxes in new york right and so there's there's this huge focus on downstate whereas the old industrial centers of of the previous century in western new york upstate new york have have been on the decline in terms of jobs and and things like that and workforce development and so the fact that we have the crypto industry, which is drawn to renewable energy, and there's a huge hydro source of power in, in, in Western New York, that's allowed um, our industry to sort of take hold and create all sorts of jobs in that area. And this is why, bringing it around to sort of the elephant in the room, we have been fighting the uh, Bitcoin ban bill here in New York for a while, which is a two-year moratorium on on. Bitcoin miners being able to use a mix of energy that's anything but 100% renewable. Mm. And for some reason in New York, they are specifically applying this only to crypto or or Bitcoin miners and the cryptocurrency mining industry. Um, And every other industry is allowed to proceed as usual. And so it's a it's a really slippery slope. Um, I think it touches on a lot of scary notions about what government could be in the future um, and happy to dive into that more if that's of interest. Yeah, no, definitely of interest. Is this in any way, can, like, is the current ban bill in any way connected to just the like bit license and kind of like you watch the old Bitcoin documentaries of just like New York, there's just this thing in the air of like, oh, New York is um, hard on Bitcoin and hard on cryptocurrency. And like I've, as being a part of like watching different startups, like, it's always, oh, are you able to operate in New York is like this thing. Is Are these fully separate things or is is it like building on the culture of whatever happened with BitLicense? They're separate uh, legislatively and legally, but I think it's the same faulty logic, right? It's the same bad policy. So for for people who aren't aware of BitLicense, so in in... 2014, right, almost a decade ago, New York created this thing called the Bit License, which prevents most people from having access and having businesses and exchanges in New York unless they go through a a multi-year, multi-million dollar process of obtaining this Bit License. And it has become a, a mockery of what it was intended to be. Um, And even what it was intended to be was sort of prejudicial. Um, and that was almost a decade ago. 
And of course, at the time, New York lawmakers stood up and held hands and threw themselves a party and said, we are leading the nation. We are leading the world in crypto regulation and Bitcoin regulation. Um, so far, nobody's followed. <laughs> Nobody even wants to go near it. It has gone through this terrible bureaucratic morass. And, and um, it's kind of an embarrassment. And so now we have this Bitcoin mining moratorium bill. And it's the same thing. A, a few far left politicians stand up and tell them, you know, say how great and they're leading and they're not. And it's going to if, if the governor signs this bill, it's it's going to be a, a stain on New York's reputation. They're not going to be able to be part of of this next generation of technology. Yeah. Can you'll be able to articulate this better than I will. So gloss over it if I'm like framing it not in the correct way. But why and I, and I don't want to make it hyper political but like bitcoin is good for like unbanked like people and so when like paul when you talked about how wall street like is a part of 40 percent of the tax of the state obviously has a lot of influence like obviously like could view bitcoin as competition like that's pretty routinely out there just like people saying that that like bitcoin is competition for banks why, like, you you would, th how is it not logical to say Bitcoin mining, like using renewable energy and helping unbanked people is not good? Like that doesn't, like just doesn't logic follow that like Bitcoin mining, using renewable energy and helping unbanked population is like good, like just fundamentally good. Where, where's the disconnect there? Uh, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more with you. And there is a huge disconnect. And one of the things we had to do about a year ago when we started this fight in New York and, and when the industry as a whole started to come into its own in terms of realizing the need for, for at least having some sort of voice in public policy is, you know, when I came in, we took a look, right? Foundry and DCD, we took a look at what, what everybody was doing in the industry and it seemed like we were spending 100% of our time defending energy use, right? And we had to make a call and say, all right, energy is really important. It's an important positive part of our narrative because we believe we have the science and the facts and we believe that this incentivizes renewable energy uh, development and profitability. But at the same time, we can't spend all of our time on it because we're on their side of the field. We are on the ESG side of the field and they will constantly move the goalpost. If we get to 90% <laughs> renewable energy, they'll want 95. Mm -hmm. We get to 100, they want 105. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So it's going to be, we have to come up and, and show the positive things that, that, that this industry can bring. And so that's what we started to develop. And we started to speak to other public policy people in the in the industry and and rely on on other people's work that has done before us and talk about exactly the things you're talking about, which is, you know, of course, incentivizing renewable energy. But secondly, financial inclusion, not only is it just for unbanked people across the world um, and but it's also for, you know, we have uh, a double digit percentage <laughs> lead for black and brown communities across America who invest in this tech in, in this technology. And so 
you know, it's it's about that sort of financial inclusion. People who don't don't have the access to Wall Street insiders and want a secure place to put their 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 money to build generational wealth. And that's what we try to focus on for some of these policymakers who are really just starting to learn. And so as an industry and as people who are Bitcoiners, we also need to be preaching the positives that we bring. And that includes, like I said, the, the jobs we're bringing, incentivizing renewable energy, financial inclusion, and most importantly, regarding financial inclusion, the security of this network. This is the most important thing that Bitcoin has not been hacked. Yeah, of course, there's scams. Every Everything's always going to have a scam or a scam artist, I should say. But the network itself has been completely secure since inception, as you know. And so we need to stress that, you know what, all the all the firewalls that other companies create, that every government agency uses a firewall, every major bank, every Wall Street uh, hedge fund, right, mm-hmm. to protect their data and assets. And that's all the energy from the miners is really doing. Yeah, they're right. verifying. The majority of it is to secure pe- the network for people. And yeah. those 46 million Americans across this country deserve the same security assurances as Wall Street investors. Right. Correct. Why and so why is Wall Street security allowed to use energy, but Bitcoin security is not allowed to use energy? And here's where the vulnerability comes in. Wall Street is and and let's just, you know, I don't want to just pick on them, but so many aspects of our society are just assumed and people take them for granted and they have just been ingrained in our culture. Um, Bitcoin is still in the extreme minority of adoption compared to other things. And so it then makes it vulnerable to political grandstanding. And that's exactly what happened in New York. And that is one of our biggest fears and why we're fighting it so much here is because we don't want it to set this terrible precedent for other politicians. So for instance, in New York, we have a low level freshman politician with little experience, no engineering, no environmental brand, you know, she was a nutritionist. And this is an incredible way to make a name for yourself because for some reason, despite, despite the small amount of people actually understand Bitcoin, it gets so much press and for a politician that is huge. So if they can, if they can virtue signal and get tons of press about it at the same time, it's almost a no-brainer for them to jump into this. Mm-hmm. And so, so this is one of the most dangerous vulnerabilities. And um, it feeds into the, some of the lessons I've learned over the past year. Um, and one of them is that you know we as a Bitcoin community need to figure out how to assemble, how to you know, publicly assemble and mobilize. Because, is... yeah, no, go keep ahead. Going. Well, so it makes me think that does the conflation of like Bitcoin and crypto like play into this at all, like in your mind of how of the ability for politicians to grandstand on like, so we say, hey, this is positive for energy, lay out all the logic. Hey, this is positive for inclusion and like uh, financial security, lay out all the logic and then point at you mentioned scams but like and then point at xyz boom 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 bad thing that's happened 
is it what, like wrong to say that the majority of that has happened? Like I fairly, fairly fair to say the majority of that that has happened has not been like Bitcoin centered. Like, but that's like getting very deep in the weeds when we're already at this like hyper emotional like level, right? And I think if it was just that, it would be a much more of a financial services thing. The reason that this blanket ban has been um, successful um, on the far left is because of the energy environmental aspect. And so one of the things we have to realize in public policy, and I hope we can change this, but industry and investors the onus of proof, like the burden of having nuance and science and facts is on us. Luckily, we have them. But unfortunately for us, the other side has no burden of proof or science or facts. All they need to do is stand up and scream the word environment. Mm-hmm. That's it. Yeah. That is all they need to do. I mean, if, if, if I read you some of the things that, that they would write to their, their legions on this one particular lake, I mean, it's, it's utterly insane nonsense. They're killing all of the trout. You know, they are, you know, envir- they don't refer to env- Bitcoin as Bitcoin. It starts, it's either energy sucking, environment killing Bitcoin. I mean, it's, it's really, really um, ruthless stuff. Yeah. And we have to realize that, you know, whether you're an industry or just a Bitcoin, uh, Bitcoiner, mm-hmm. um, there is a, a segment of the population that is well-funded, well-oiled, and wants to, wants to take out this industry and this, and this technology. Um, and even though they don't have the science to back it up, even though it's a fraction of, of energy consumption, um, it's something they think they can win on. And that's mm-hmm. more important to them than actually making a difference in the environment itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, can I, it's making me want to lay out a, um, so I've been doing my own research on like just the solar like politics happening in California. Uh, I'd love to get your like just thoughts on this super, super briefly, not to detract from like New York, uh, but I'm wondering if there's any parallels. So you can say there are none or whatever, but so, <laughs> I just moved into a new built house. I'll tell the story very fast. I just moved into a new built house. California state legislator mandates that all new builds built in the state of California must come with solar. Okay, perfect. So comes with solar. I have my like initial four kilowatt system. I asked them at the time of building the home, Sunrun. I say, hey, I would love to fill the whole roof up. Like the fact that I'm just already here and required to do it. Like I would love to just fill the whole roof up, roll it all into the mortgage. I'm down. Like, please let me buy more. And they're like, no, you can't buy more. I'm like, okay, well, maybe it was a pre-negotiated size or something with the home builder. Totally understand. I'm like, when can I buy more? They're like, call us back six months later. Okay, sweet. So call them back six months later. And I'm like, it takes multiple phone calls to realize like the utility company, there's an agreement between the solar providers and the utility companies that they're only allowed to build 200% over capacity. So if I show them my utility bill, and it shows them that I'm not using above what my solar current system is using right now, they're not allowed to sell me more. And like, I have a system on my house where I measure how much energy my solar produces and how much energy my house uses so that I can use exactly the amount that I'm producing because I want to be my own, like 
that's being a responsible energy producer, right? Like I'm knowing how much I'm creating, I'm using that much, but in order for them, and then I call them and I'm like, hey, I wanna buy more production so I can use more. They're like, well, are you currently using more? And I'm like, no, I've been throttling my own usage as a responsible, so that's just an interesting, super interesting example of like, like producing energy is positive. Me as an individual producing energy is positive. Like rather like, and then, hey, I want to produce more energy. I have the funds to be able to buy this. Please let me buy it. And then there's just, so there's just very many, the reason for this story, I've just, does anything come to mind off of that? Of just like, there's, there's a lot of very weird layers in this energy stuff. Yeah. Um, I, I've talked to like a lot of different policymakers at the federal level and state level. And, um, you know, sometimes I have to say to them, look, the only thing that's more complicated than maybe the ins and outs of proof of work versus proof of stake and, and Bitcoin versus crypto, the only thing more complicated than that is our grid, mm-hmm. right? And how energy actually works. Mm-hmm. Um, very few people understand it. Um, and even people, you know, you could read books about it and still have, be left with questions. And I think any, any really great thing is, is, is going to be complicated and you want to figure out, you know, exactly how it works and ba- break it down. What, what, what you're saying does remind me of, you know, kind of this, this paradox or contradiction that's being created, which is that, you know, you can have, for instance, Greenwich Power Plant, which is where all of this controversy came from in New York, which is on Seneca Lake. It's operating with its, within its permit. It's creating electricity for the grid and also using excess electricity to, to Bitcoin mine, mm-hmm. right? Um, this, is, this helps balance the grid and all that. But it, it, there's a huge disconnect for, the, for, for people when they, they don't understand that, the, that where their electricity comes from. You know, they, it, it's coming from, for the most part, fossil fuels at this point. Mm-hmm. And in order to have a real, real quick, fast, faster transition, or at least faster than we're currently doing, you need something like Bitcoin mining to incentivize private companies to expand and be profitable. Yeah. And, and that's something that New York doesn't understand because they want to, a lot of politicians just want to grandstand and show, hey, the environment's good. And you're, I think most intelligent people also say, yes, we know the environment's good, but how are you going to transition in the long term? Um, and that's what we've been asking them, and they don't really have answers. For instance, mm-hmm. right now, New York City, right, the liberal, the the sort of far left bastion, is runs on eighty five percent fossil fuels, and it was mo- and it was largely those politicians trying to impose on Western New York that runs more on renewables, what it should and should not be doing with energy and which yeah. industries have the right, which is sort of the, the next step to this is I, I would ask anybody to take a look at this law and say, this is the first time in history that a government, right? A Western liberal government, even at the state level has said, you know what? This one industry does not have access to this type of energy. Mm-hmm. 
It's deplatforming. It's deplatforming yeah. at the at the state government level. Mm-hmm. And exactly. And why not? Like, there, every industry in New York should be noted. You know, taking note of this because mm-hmm. crypto. You know, Bitcoin miners and cryptocurrency miners are taking the brunt of this now because it gets a lot of press and it's sexy and it gets clicks. But in the long term, what's you know, maybe they don't like this particular air conditioning company. Maybe they want to, you know, get rid of this particular chit man. I mean, it, it is a yeah. really overreaching and dangerous yeah. precedent. Um, and it's something that we have to take note of, especially if there's some sort of domino effect and, and smaller blue states want to try to follow this. Or like we talked about earlier, if there are politicians who think that they can get press and green cred from it. Do you think so? kind of help us understand more a little bit about like what's at stake do you like if this goes through does grant like greenwich power company do they have the ability to you know move it up the chain and like take it to the i don't know to the supreme i can't explain all the different layers but can they take it to the supreme court and say like this this is like unconstitutional right or i don't know so so here's the here's the I don't want to say funny because it's actually really sad. There's a lot of New York jobs involved here. But the, the, the odd thing about all this is that the bill itself is redundant to what is already in the power of the executive branch in New York, meaning that the, Depi- the, the Department of Environmental Conservation has the right to revoke air permits for whatever, businesses, plants. And of course... After this bill passed, that's what the governor did. She allowed the DEC to revoke Greenwich's air permit renewal process, right? And so actually, they've done the worst to a place like Greenwich that they already could. The bill coming online would just, you know, kind of turn off the entire industry if the entire industry isn't already turned off by New York after bit license and now this um, slog through, you know, through the uh, the FUD of the, yeah. the, the far left ESG advocates in New York, so we are uh, we are to answer your question. Yes, it is possible. There is a period when Greenwich can uh, can protest this and try to uh, get a reevaluation from the DEC. If that doesn't work, it goes to litigation and it will work its way up the New York court system and they estimate this could take the next couple of years even and so what new york has done is they greenwich said to them before hey look we're within our permit already we understand that this has become completely politicized we are willing to even go further we'll go 45 percent under what we're allowed um let's just work on this yep. and because of the political nature on the other side and the and the and the loud voice of the other side um, New York's government said, nope, we'd rather tangle up taxpayers in two years worth of litigation while you run at full capacity during all of that time. Mm-hmm. And um, and they'll likely lose, I think, in, in general. Just yeah. for a little bit of context of why they may lose, the people in this one particular area of New York have been fighting this power plant far before it was used for cryptocurrency mining. Far before. Mm-hmm. And it, they've taken it to New York Supreme Court five times. Mm. 
they've lost five times. Mm-hmm. You know what their re- reason they've lost? They've lost five times because they have had no evidence. Literally, mm-hmm. the judges didn't lack of evidence. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, this is where we have science and facts on our side, but they have volume on theirs. And so we need, and, and this is not just for the near term, but we really need across, you know, the, the Bitcoiner movement, we need to be able to mobilize people to show up. We need to be able to have politicians give a speech with one or 200 people behind them and not one dozen people mm-hmm. behind them. Mm-hmm. You know, because that goes a long way for a politician, especially at the state level. If you can go into a rally inside a cap capital, which we did, we didn't have yep. the turnout we wanted, but if you can and just have 200 people, that's nothing. I mean, yeah. I'm a nobody. I've had 200 likes on a tweet. For sure. <laughs> you know? For sure. Yeah. No, definitely. And like we've we've had other people on. Um, I talked to you a little bit offline of like I've had a background in just kind of campaigns and like uh, helping build grassroots snowballs. Kind of kind of pivot us towards that. Like, tell us a little bit more about your background, how you ended up at Foundry, and just give us more about why public policy matters and Bitcoiners um, should engage with it. Yeah, um, I'll I'll start there. I I, I think public policy, you know, there is this this mentality within the Bitcoiner community of, you know, Bitcoin will be okay. Bitcoin will be fine. And and I can't argue with that. You're right. Bitcoin will be fine. However, we want Bitcoin to be fine in the United States for at least, you know, we want it to be decentralized around the world, but we want it to also have the backing of 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 United States law. And we want to have U.S. you know, citizens having jobs in the industry and spreading this message. And so I think it's really important for that. Like none of us want to have to move. And I think a lot of Bitcoiners would actually consider moving if if President Biden came out today and said Bitcoin is banned like China did. Right. I mean, there would be some people who would get mad about that. And so I think it's important to engage and create the, the sort of system that embraces this to make it easier for us to orange pill more and more people. I'll super um, underscore that. Like, no, I like, I like where I live. Like I like being in a town and helping small businesses know each other and like neighbors know each other. And like, well, I'll just say this for myself and like any like public policy people watching, you know, like the, the current options like for currency and banking and stuff doesn't work for me and my family. It's not serving my family anymore. So I'm using this new option on the internet for that. But that doesn't change that I have a mortgage and am married and live physically like right here and want this to be better. And so like, I'm not going, the fact that larger tectonic, like kind of, macroeconomic and political stuff is trying to like sway public opinion one way or another on this technology that doesn't change the fact that i'm literally right here as your neighbor using it like as my base money so i think that's helped that's why i'm passionate about like bitcoin meetups and i can see the way that bitcoin meetups over and i agree with you about the 200 people behind someone talking i can see a future where like bitcoiners like are city council people and i've even joked about like dude i want to be on my homeowners association and if our hoa needs to build a power plant then my hoa will build a power plant like i'm down like whatever we need to do to like make this group of these two thousand homes great 
Like I'll, we'll build our own grid right here for these 2000 homes because I know how to monetize it now. And I know how to like plan out into the future because Bitcoins are better. Bitcoin is better than municipal bonds because of math. Like, and so just, there's just that whole, that whole area has so much room to run. And so that's my answer for why, like, I like being involved in public policy as a Bitcoiner. That's right. And I, I think you're a hundred percent right. Um, there, there's already a couple, you know, I mean, Cynthia Lummis in, in the Senate is, is, uh, a great advocate and I've, I've met her and seen her speak and she is passionate and knowledgeable about the space. Um, and there are, there are some people and it will be more. And the reason I know that is because this is a generational thing. And, you know, we've talked about financial inclusion, but one of the things that often gets left out of financial inclusion is just the general generational aspect of it. Many people of our generation or, or younger, or maybe just older, um, you know, came of age or graduated college or high school during the 2008 Wall Street crash. And it, in, and it, it left us with this feeling of, all right, I don't trust this segment of society. And we know from all the statistics that have come out since, it's only gotten worse. The fines have gone up worse. I mean, it's, it's, it's gotten worse and worse. And so we've looked for this alternative system. Not only did Bitcoin you know, stem from that, right, with Genesis Block and what was in there, but I think a lot of people's attention can be turned to it based on these historical remembrances that are specific to a generation that came out of school with less options because of the manipulations of the few. And, and as a result of that, as, as time goes on and the older generation is not in office anymore, we will fill that and we'll be much more comfortable um, with it. Just like, you know, the internet now, I mean, you know, there are many politicians who don't use the internet. There used to be, you know, quite a few. Um, so I think that that's a big part. So, so to get to your other part of your question, uh, my background, I, I worked in, a wide variety of different things. Uh, I I worked a lot in international development. Um, I, I lived for about five years in, in Africa. I worked for some think tanks there. I've also worked for the UN Millennium Development Goals uh, through Columbia University and in, in implementing all of the programs that were supposed to lift people out of poverty for that. I, uh, I was a White House fellow from there and actually became a, a diplomat after that in trying to, during the Obama administration, trying to close Guantanamo Bay. So a large part of my job was to um, go and meet with foreign officials in their countries, bring, you know, security officers or intelligence officers down to Guantanamo Bay. Um, I would meet with, with detainees in order to, to make security assessments, things like that, part of that process. Um, I also, you know, worked in intelligence for a number of years after that. And when I came out of uh, the intelligence community, I went over to uh, New York State um, working on pandemic response. Mm -hmm. And so while I had throughout all of this time, I had been following, you know, Bitcoin and, and other things. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had a personal interest, but when I was in New York and this <laughs> Cuomo scandal happened and um, I was like, this is gross. I'm going to go someplace else. Uh, I was lucky enough to get linked up with DCG and Foundry. And so that's how I, I came 
on board at Foundry, and uh, it's been absolutely fantastic. I found the community to be super welcoming. Um, cool. There's always going to be skeptics in the community yeah. um, based on you know my particular background in national mm-hmm. security, and and that's perfectly fine. Um, but uh, you know, I spent the past year fighting this bill mm-hmm. through the through the birth of my first mm-hmm. child, as I mentioned on another uh, thing I was doing without cool. a break. Like I know where I'm yeah. at with this. <laughs> okay, and so I just thought of a new question or a new way of asking a question that I've never had before. I'm lots of the Bitcoin community is very freedom leaning, obviously. Like, and I'm part of that. But I just thought of a better way that I want to ask you something. What? And I can hear in your voice, like you're like a person of freedom and like economic development, and like you've done that for your career. What? What is the best part? of the US federal government in your opinion? Like what is the best part? What does what does it do the best? Or talk about the at the state level too, if you want. Man, I was only prepared to talk shit today. I didn't know I'd I have know. to give I know. Some- and I can and I feel like like we I talk a lot about like this is frustrating. We should change it. This is frustrating, we should change it. This is frustrating, we should change it. But like in the same way we talk about a spectrum of decentralization, like, you know, within crypto, and we talk about why, like, Bitcoin self-custody is, like, 100%, like, the best, like, thing to do where there's still financial services that will serve people, like, with Bitcoin is basically, you know, over here. You know what I mean? Like, I'm, what is, because I want Bitcoin to help Americans also. And so, yeah, it's just... You could frame it as that too, or like, why is Bitcoin good for America? If that's easier to answer. Yeah. Um, well, I think for for multiple, there's multiple things to peel back there. The first, the first is I'll say one of the best designs of the U.S. government is also one of its most frustrating. Mm-hmm. Frustrating. So the the thing about it is that the the federal government is so bureaucratized um, and so weighted, right? Um, And so bloated that it is hard to move it like a massive ship in any fast form. And the reason I say this is a positive thing is because occasionally you can have a leader who, who maybe wants to go the wrong way, but can't, right? Because there's just this massive bureaucracy. Now, on the flip side of that, it is also a huge blob that will never stop growing. And this is one of my biggest faults with the U.S. government is that as somebody who's worked on the very inside of it, mm-hmm. um, and that's and that's some of the most, you know, high level parts of it, it is something that is it, it's almost impossible to scale back no matter which party is in control. It just keeps growing. And so I think... You know, I would hope that if there was a day when we were able to have Bitcoin be more involved in the American way of life or that the simplicity of Bitcoin would help the government in some way simplify itself a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, this, the, the other things I'll say is a bit a bit more realistic, which is, you know, as a national security person, or a former national security person, I think that there is a lot of opportunity for the United States to become a part of this. I think that we have the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative, 
which we will never match across the rest of the world at this point. Um, but we can, by adopting the Bitcoin network, the largest, most secure network in the world, by adopting this, um, or at least supporting it, we can create a sort of digital Belt and Road initiative where places have the ability to opt into a financial system that they would not otherwise have the ability to do so. Mm-hmm. And so this is the most important thing that I think Bitcoin could do for the U.S., Um, you know, the network is there, it is secure, the smartest people are working in this industry that, you know, all the U.S. needs to do is hop on board. And so I think it could be really beneficial to people all around the world who want to opt into something else. And that by backing that, we don't need to go and create all of these exploitative contracts like China does in Africa. Um, something I've written on a lot in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't need to create those exploitative contracts because we're part. We're already supporting a system that allows them an alternative to a repressive regime, repressive uh, oppressive regime, or a uh, corrupt government official that is debasing the the, the, the currency. So yeah. I think that that is the most key thing that the United States could do for its own national security and for the betterment of the world is to just throw its weight a little bit behind this network that is doing all the work already. Mm -hmm. Dude, take us farther down that story of like, so we, so we see the news on Twitter of like central Africa Republic, um, adopting Bitcoin, um, keep going on that story of just like, what you saw with China and the contracts and or just you living there and what you see how government operates in Africa. Um, and why is it, at least from the outside, looking like this one government is being more receptive to it than the New York state government? <laughs> I, uh, I'll, I'll start this off with, with one anecdote, which is my first experience with Bitcoin, which I, I was actually sick in West Africa with malaria. Wow. And, and uh, the, one of the medical technicians had mentioned to me that he was putting his money in Bitcoin because he didn't trust the government. Wow. Um, I wish I had bought back then, but, <laughs> but it was just like, oh, really? And then it, it's, it came up later here and there. And then finally, when I started to actually read, um, that's when you start to, at least when you're open-minded, understand the magnitude of of this technology. Um, So that was actually my first experience, uh, was in Sub-Saharan Africa uh, with with Bitcoin. And so I I don't think it's it's new to the the continent. Um, However, a nation state um, adopting Bitcoin is new. And the reason it's so important is because there's all of these, these really not only, so we have China and we have like the U.S. Western system of of how to deal with um, the developing world. And and both to some extent want to help, but also want their cut of what they get for their money, right? Um, And so the, the Western world tends to implement that through you know, things like the IMF and the World Bank, um, and then sometimes their own local agencies like USAID and things like that, but mostly IMF and World Bank for actual, like, you know, 
carrot uh, interactions. Like, here's a bunch of money. Let's vote, vote with us in the UN and let's do it this way. And um, and then you have China that that has been very active in a play, in a continent like Africa and building lots of, uh, you know, lots of infrastructure. Um, they they actually built the African Union building in Addis mm-hmm. Ababa. So like, you know, they, they're really heavily invested. But as a result, they, they're very transactional, right? We will give you some money, uh, you know, in West Africa, like pick your country, but we're going to get ownership and rights to all of your f- fisheries in the water, right? So um, there's, there's always a, a quid pro quo. In the West, it tends to be a little bit more like over time, like we'll, we'll take care of your debt now, you'll just owe us. And, you know, it's much, I think, a little bit more, not as transactional, but eventually it becomes that. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, the fact that a state would stand up against those types of pressures and not only that, a state as vulnerable um, and impoverished as CAR um, is, is really quite remarkable, I think, because usually they're so susceptible out of, you know, just out of need, not out of any weakness or anything, but just mm-hmm. because they, you know, they don't have the resources to, to sometimes take care of what they need to take care of. And so they depend sometimes on, on this this relationship with larger powers, which is, I think, very common across the world. And so that's something we were able to opt out of, which is amazing. um, This is completely crazy that like you're like talking about Africa brought me back to like an American analogy. But for some reason, that just made it click to me of like the reason why a lot of states are not able to like step up on states' rights when we talk about the federal government blob growing is because of the money also. Like, and that's something so foundational that like you kind of know and remember, but you, but I, you don't think about it day to day. When you think about just like writing like your tweets about freedom and stuff, like I'm not thinking about it day to day of like just literally like, n- no, if like if the states stand up to the federal government, like, there's money on the line, like actual money to do things is on the line. And so that'll get twisted against you of XYZ infrastructure not working because the states like are not financially secure. So in the same way, like CAR is looking for a new way to become financially secure or bringing it back even to personal finance, like the best way that you and your family can be like secure and not have to like get into like poor negotiations is by like being self-sufficient and so it does kind of yeah it's it's wild at a lot of levels it comes back to like being able to be self-sufficient yeah i mean take a look at new york right i mean most people don't realize this but before covid uh new york was kind of broke um there were some serious (laughs) uh issues there um the when the covid money came in that was huge and they had plenty of money to spend, especially that second wave of COVID money uh, towards the end of the, of the height of it that, you know, kind of put them over the edge and gave them a lot. So yeah, there's always going to be dependency and states are always looking for money from the government. And 
that's a whole another story of where money yeah. comes from and how that whole process works. <laughs> but uh, no, this is awesome. Thanks for. Uh, I think we nailed it. I'm just like going through the whole arc. Like I love the Kyle Schnapp's arc. Like we did it, and I love it. I hope the audience. I hope you all enjoyed it. Leave your comments below on what part of the arc you love the most. Um, but for real, all right, Kyle. The ending question we try to ask everyone is. This is, and what's a Bitcoin product or service that doesn't exist yet that you wish existed? A Bitcoin service that you said doesn't yep. exist? Doesn't exist yet. Or it could be small or one that you haven't tried or something. But yeah, what's like a Bitcoin product or service that you think needs to exist? Give me an example of what other people have said. Okay, a good example is like small business accounting software. Like currently there's not like a really solid way to just like get your Bitcoin point of sale, you know, to into QuickBooks in the exact same way your USD is. So it could be at the individual level, government level, mining, like what would make it, what would make Bitcoin getting into Western New York, I don't know, easier on a day to day. I, I say mine is kind of a version of what you brought up. So one of the things that's most important to public, what I view as the future of Bitcoin's public policy is the ability to involve small businesses. One of the, the biggest things you can do is have tons of small businesses signing on onto something, right? And so if we had some way to make sure that, like, let's say, let's just take New York as an app, like all the businesses in New York City could now get rid of the 3% Visa MasterCard, yeah. right? Um, that's going to help us get rid of bit license, right? Yeah. You know, if, if you get all of those businesses, so I, I would say that mine would be similar, but more focused on the public policy side, like something that, you know, helps get those businesses on board, provides those small businesses with a way to get around the Visa MasterCard thing so that, we can actually get people on board. And there are huge communities. I mean, the Orthodox Jewish community in New York would love to get be a part of that. Um, the the uh, West African restaurant and East African restaurant owners in Harlem would love to be a part of that. Harlem Bitcoin community, we've had a lot of conversations. So if we could get small businesses access to payments with Bitcoin, like in a really effective, secure, fast way with Lightning, then I think it would be perfect. Love it. I stamp all that also. Kyle, where can people tell us your Twitter or tell us your email? How do you want people to contact you? Yeah. So uh, on Twitter, I am at go bank yourself and, uh, you know, check out foundry. It's at foundry services. Uh, we got our foundry Academy online. If anybody wants to learn how to be a technician themselves um, and then lots of other business streams there. Uh, but Twitter is the best way to get in touch with me. Uh, you know, I'm like getting, I'm still getting used to it. I started at the beginning of this year. Um, so uh, we're, uh, we're going strong. We got 500 followers and we're building it strong, man. Perfect. Well, yeah, Bogdan <laughs> will clip all this out and we will, we'll get people to, uh, to your Twitter. So thanks so much for hanging out today, dude. All right, everyone. We'll see you on the next one. Hey, all this is Brian. You can reach me on Twitter at Brain Harrington. Shoot me a DM with any feedback from today's episode. This has been a Choice App production. Bitcoin is becoming centric to personal finance, and we want to help you learn how to better engage with Bitcoin financial services. None of this is financial advice and is for education and entertainment only.